Hello and welcome to the Back to the Pavilion podcast. This is episode 13, but don't worry, it's not unlucky for you today as we welcome a genuine England Ashes hero back to the Pavilion. If you've missed any of the previous 12 episodes, then don't worry, they are all still available for you to download and enjoy on Google Podcasts, Spotify and pretty much everywhere where you can get podcasts. I've had some amazing feedback recently about the podcast and love to hear from all of you, so do please get in touch. The best way is through Twitter, where you can tweet me on at Lloydzilla. But back to this episode. Like I say, we welcome a true Ashes legend from 2005, known for his pace and ability to reverse swing the ball. Sadly, that series was his last for England, but he still went on to have a successful career for his home county, Glamorgan, and the county that he moved to, Hampshire. I'm of course talking about the king of reverse swing, Simon Jones. So please join me as we welcome him back to the pavilion. It's one of those things that when you're playing, it kind of um, dominates you really. That's all you think about is cricket and, and you think this is going to be my life. Now, you think about it, when most lads finish at 35, they've still got 30 years left to work. And, you know, that's, that's, that is the reality. That is just how it is. And I think the biggest thing is the PCA, now the Professional Cricket Association, are doing a wonderful job. Um, you know, their, um, their player development managers are going into the grounds, getting the lads into training schemes, um, getting them work placement, getting them work experience. So they can kind of find out as they're playing what they want to do when they finish. Um I think in the early days that wasn't there. So it was one of those things that, like when I started in 96, there was six month contracts mm. and then you'd work in the winter somewhere else. Like Adrian Dale was an estate agent um, and a couple of the other lads had, had different jobs. Like Steve James was writing for papers. Um, so they kind of had a path that they wanted to go down. They were planning already. That was just a natural way of doing it. I think whereas now today, they've really got to kind of get into their heads that they've got a plan for the future because you don't know what's around the corner. Uh, and I now work in at Kerry London, um, one of the top 100 um, independent insurance brokers in, in Britain. And that's one of the biggest messages I'm trying to get across is to insure themselves against, obviously, the worst case scenario. Yep. Um, because we don't know, do we? You know, you think of the injuries I had. You think that one I had in Brisbane. My career could have been over. Mm. If I hadn't had such a good surgeon up in Sheffield, Derek Bickerstaff, I might not have come back from that. I was 22, 23 years old. What was I going to do? It's, um, it's a scary thought. How much planning had you done prior to retirement at any point? Um, I've made some contacts. I think that's the biggest message I'd say to any of the, the, the younger lads and even the lads who are getting, old, uh, getting on um, is to make as many contacts as you can. Do you know when your club captain or your coach says, right, we've got to go meet the sponsors? So that's where you meet people. Yeah. That's where you make contacts. And that's where you can make contacts for life after cricket. I know it seems a bit of a, a, a pain at the time. Just get it done. Just get it done. Because those are the people that may be able, they may be, I'm not saying they definitely will, but they may be able to help you with life after cricket or life after sport. And that's the biggest these lads have to get into their heads they have to try and socialise and, and mix with these guys I mean you were released from Glamorgan what 2013 what yeah. was that like when you I read, I've read your book and you know you get that phone call saying that you're not we're not going to offer you a new contract yeah. what was that feeling like was it relief or shock no it was shock 
um, because I'd been told that there was going to be um, a contract, and that then it wasn't. Um, so you know, I was left just thinking, "Wow, what am I going to do?" Um, I'd made a couple of contacts, so I got in touch with them and said, "Look, um, just been released, blah blah blah." So I started work with a finance company. Um, that went all right. And then I moved on to some ambassadorial roles. Mm. Now, these, these are jobs that I can do easily. But it's, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Do you know what I mean? Um, it, it, they were just um, a bridging gap, really, to, to try and go through the process of where I wanted to go. Um, then I worked at a school in Cardiff, a private school, um, as a, a coach there. Uh, that, was, that was good. Um, and then I met Dean Kalaz at Kerry London last year. Um, through the PCA and then we met again in, in the winter for a chat and then we decided that it would be a great idea if I came and worked for them it started in December and I've loved it ever since Was that always in your mind that you, you wanted to get into insurance or was the, the bits before that testing the water with different things? Yeah, it was, it, it was one of those things I, do you know what, looking back I wish I'd done a lot more and been more proactive mm. uh, in preparing myself for finishing um, it's one of those things that I just said earlier that you just don't think it's going to end at times um, you know you look at guys who are doing training and stuff and good on them really um, but yeah that was one of the biggest not regrets but one of the things I would have liked to have assessed at the time was was getting some experience um, and getting out there and finding what I really wanted to do um, a lot of lads go into coaching um, the very select few are lucky enough to go into the media um, and get a, you know, a lifelong job there. Uh, so, yeah, you're fairly limited in terms of uh, becoming a coach, becoming um, a media pundit. So the best thing lads can do is look at alternatives. Like I remember Michael Carberry when he was at Hampshire. I think he did um electrician's course. So he's a qualified electrician. So he had something in his, in, in his locker yeah. If you need to you start up his own business or whatever it was. So, you know, yeah, my advice would be just get as much training and get as much experience in as you can just to find out what exactly you want to do. With with the injuries that you had during your career, did you ever consider walking away before that or was it always, I want to play for as long as possible? In hindsight, in 2006, maybe I should have walked mm. when I first did my left knee. Yeah. Um, but I'm the type of person, you know, I'd, I'd listen to some of the the um, surgeons and some of the medical staff around me said, you should be able to come back from this. So I always say to myself, I don't want to get to 40 and ask myself the question, what, what if, mm. you know what I mean? That, that, that would be, that would kill, I'm 41 now. And I can ask myself that question, what if, and I, I did everything I possibly could to carry on playing. So I'm, that's, I'm at ease with that. I didn't want to get you and think, well, could I carry on playing? Because it's the game you love. Um, but in hindsight, hindsight's, uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, I should have maybe bagged it in then. But uh, look, everything happens for a reason. Um, you know, I played on for another seven years. Uh, played in the final at Lords. You know, the way, that's, a, that's a decent way to bow out. All right, we didn't win. We lost to a very good not, uh, Nottingham team. But yeah, that's that's. I'm happy with it. I mean, you, I mean, you did quite well in that final. What you, you took two for thirty-six and and got. Alex Hales and James Taylor out. Did that yeah. ever, did you think that that might have just nudged Glamorgan to give you that extra deal, finishing so well? Looking at it, 
I would have liked them to, but I think in terms of the club's finances, I think they were looking at maybe um, cutting costs and having players that could play all three formats. Now, there was no way I was going to be able to play four-day stuff. My knee wouldn't allow it. Um, I, I just about managed to play the 40-over and 50-over stuff and the T20, you know, T20 was fine. So I think that was one of the reasons maybe they did it. Um, and at the end of the day, it's a business. Um, there's no personal issues there. You know, I rarely go back down there, and it's not because there's any malice or you know um, ill feeling. It's just I don't get the opportunity, and I don't particularly like watching cricket. <laughs> it's always I, it, I, you know, I've interviewed quite a few people now, and I, a lot of you have said a lot of ex-players have said, "Oh, I don't really like watching cricket," which you yeah. sort of as a you know a spectator. My wife despairs because I'd happily go and watch, you know, Northampton thirds against Derbyshire fourths if such a thing existed, and yeah, she yeah. despairs at me. And then, it, I, I, as a spectator, I, it seems odd, but I guess if you're in that bubble all the time, it becomes does it become a chore rather than something you enjoy? Um, do you know what? I, I don't. I wouldn't say it's a chore. What I'd say it is, I think you'd rather be playing. Um, you'd rather be out there doing your stuff because you're in control. I was quite a nervous watcher, especially if we'd just done two days in the dirt and our batters were dropping like flies. And I was just like, here we go again. We're going to be back in the dirt now in a couple of hours. Um, so I was a little bit nervous in that sense. But um, yeah, it was, I'd rather go kick, uh, kick back and relax, go and have a, go and have a sleep, um, just recharge really. Um, I'll watch it if I'm having a couple of beers. Yeah. So if I'm with a couple of mates and you can more of a social thing rather than anything. I wouldn't go there with a packed lunch and sit down and just watch the whole day. Um, I love the game. Um, and I'll watch, say if England, like when they played in that World Cup, that World Cup final, I'd watch that. I'd watch that from start to finish. Yeah. So I want to see what goes on. But um, yeah, in terms of just watching um, county cricket and the guy, I'd struggle. I mean, you, you finished your career back at Glamorgan. Was that always in your head that when you, you started there and then you moved away, you played for Hampshire and, and Worcestershire, yeah. was it always in your head to go back and try and finish your career where it started? thing is, Hugh, I never wanted to leave. Right. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. Mm. Um, I was on a central contract and obviously the left knee was playing up, so they, they, they took that away. Um, and rightfully so, I wasn't fit to play. Um, so obviously then I was left with Glamorgan. Now I'd been offered terms before that. And when they came back to sign me, the terms weren't what we'd agreed. So we came into discussions and I wasn't happy. Um, so then Worcester came in and, and, and offered me the money that, that I'd been offered from Glamorgan at the start. And um, but, right, but the biggest thing was, it wasn't about the money, it was about trust is about backing me and Steve Rhodes at Worcester backed me mm. he didn't put any clauses in where I'd be on a, a pay-as-you-play contract um, that was the biggest thing for me is I'm, I'm massive on loyalty and trust yeah and to be fair look, Matt Maynard is a, is a wonderful friend of mine um, and Mike Facken is as well um, and they just made a, a business decision mm. I, I you know at the time it was a little bit raw you know I, I felt as if I had no alternative but to leave Glamorgan. Being a Welsh lad, that's, that's hard. Yeah, so really hard. 
Um, but, you know, Matt and, and Mike had a, a chat and they, they, they were doing what they felt was right for the club at the time. And I, I totally respect that. Um, it was one of the t- things I, I had to do what was right for me. And, and, I, and I went. Was it good to go back? Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. Changing would change a lot mm. from when I'd left. Um, still a very good changing room. Uh, a lot of young lads coming through, a lot of talented lads coming through. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a good couple of years I, I, I had there. Uh, I went back there in 2011, I think. Maybe started 2012 on a, um, on a loan deal from Hampshire. Mm. And uh, it was one of those things I wasn't getting picked to Hampshire for whatever reason that was. You know, Dominic Cork was my captain at the time and he said the wickets weren't suiting me. Um, they were pairing wickets to um, suit Danny Briggs um, and the other bowlers who, were, who weren't quick. So it was almost like they play on wickets that were fairly abrasive. So then the batters would have to hit them rather than yeah. let the ball come on. And, you know, another decision by Dominic, which is fair enough. Um, so then I thought, right, I, I just want to play cricket. I'm coming towards the end of my career. I just want to play. I don't want to be sat on a bench. So I had a chat with Matthew Mott. He said, we'd love to have you here. And so they got chatting and then I went back to the Morgan. What skills do you think your, your on-field career have transferred to your off-field career? So do you think... I think any sports people, right? Male, female, whatever it is. They have this natural um, competitive spirit. They have discipline. Um, punctuality um, and they've, they've got an attitude where they don't give up and I think that's massive in the business world or any world you've got to have that attitude where you can transfer these skills into, into work and life and I think that's where sports people have a, an advantage over what you'd say is Joe Public because they've been through high pressure situations they've dealt with um, you know the press getting on their backs they've dealt with um you know, extreme kind of pressure from, from the outside, especially if you play at the, the highest level. So if you can deal with those kind of, that kind of scrutiny, then working in an office and, and dealing with making phone calls, emails, and trying to get some deals done, it's, it's, it's fairly easy. What have you found is like the, the biggest differences from your playing career to your, your off-field career? Um, I know a lot of people will say, oh, do you miss the change room? Do you miss... Uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, the travel and the, the you know the, the the weeks away. Don't miss any of that. Don't miss the dressing room. Uh, I know a lot of lads say they do miss the dressing room. I don't. Yeah. Um, because it changed so much from when I started to when I finished. Um, it didn't seem as fun anymore. It didn't seem. Uh, yeah, it just didn't seem as as much fun. And you know, it's, it's gone far more professional now. You rarely see the lads. Um, having a beer um, after test matches. Um, I'm not saying it's the right thing, but that was the era I grew up in. Yeah. And I, I don't mean you're going out to get blind drunk. I just mean you're having a couple of quiet ones after after the after the test match and mixing with the opposition. Um, and you know you were walking in and you had to do a urine test to see if you were hydrated. Um, and that's fair enough. The the SNC guy, the strength and conditioning guy, is doing his job. When I started, you just walked in, got your kit on and, and got her out there, you know what I mean? And um, it had changed a heck of a lot. But it was a, it was a great 
great, great, great bunch of lads at Glamorgan. I think the thing I miss is, is testing myself. Mm. Um, you know, to have that competition against the other guy down at the other end, to see if I can get him out, um, to see who's going to be better on the day. I think that's, that's the thing I miss, is, is seeing how good I am. No, my body wouldn't let me do that now. But I've played in um, the PCA Masters games. Mm. And I only bowl for about five yards. But that um, that fire is still there at times. If I get for four, then I can guarantee <laughs> you that the next one won't be as full. <laughs> Have you? I mean, you've played for the PCA Masters, but is that something that you enjoy doing? And and I think every single person who I've interviewed has talked so highly of the PCA. Is that an yeah. important organisation for you? Huge, yeah. They've they've done so much. Um, from when I started to where they are now, they've progressed massively as an association. Um, they've got the right people in the right places. And um, they, the, the biggest thing for me is who, that they want what's best for the players. And I think that's the key. You can look after these lads and help them as much as you can. It's not just about contracts. It's not just about um, well-being and stuff. It's, it's addiction. It's gambling. It's drink. It's wherever else. Um, and they've got systems in place to deal with all of that. They've got counsellors. They've every nearly every base is covered, and especially now with this initiative they've got going with getting the boys into work placements and work experience. Now, there's no reason no, none of those players can say, "I didn't have the option of, of doing that," because they can. If they want to do it, they can. Uh, yeah, I, I think it looks you know it looks a fantastic organisation having come from teaching where. Sort of unions are, are, are very much involved, and but not necessarily always in the best interest of teachers. I think the PCA yeah, yeah. looks to be an organisation that really does have its members' interests at heart. Um, yeah. On coming out, a lot of the guys I've talked to have talked about the change in pace being really difficult to sort of get on board with when they stop playing and start working in in industry or in in an office. Is that something that you've encountered where that lack of kind of instant pressure is something quite hard to deal with no i think because i'd had a, a lot of injuries i'd had a, a fair bit of time away from the game and i wasn't playing every game i wasn't um, traveling every game so i had a bit of time to spend at home and i can i think that kind of prepared me for when i was going to finish um and do you know what i think you get to the point at times all right, people say my career was cut short. Well, it wasn't really because I was 34. Um, my career was cut short in terms of my international career, yes, because of my left knee. I think I could have played on for another four years. But, yeah, the, the, the change in pace, I, I don't see it myself. Um, I think it's one of those things that I, I got to where I was going to go and when I finished, it was it was... All right, I would have played probably for another year if I could have. But it was more or less the right time to do it. Um, at that age, the way I was feeling about my knee, the way I was feeling about my training, um, I didn't have much left in the tank, I'm honest. I was, when I had that phone call, yeah, I was disappointed. Yes, I was a little bit raw, but it was almost a, a weight had been lifted off my shoulders because I thought, I don't have to go into training again. I don't have to go through the pain of, you know, seeing the physio get my knee done, preparing to, to even bowl. Yeah, it was it was kind of a, a massive weight bump. Uh, you mentioned in your book that when you got that phone call, your body kind of felt 
fresher and brighter straight away. Do you think, yeah. was it as much a psychological pressure on you that was causing the injuries, or not the yeah. injuries, but the fatigue by the end? Yeah, massively. I, I think that your mind is so powerful. I mean, if you can't switch that off, you're struggling. And I, I, I talk about my, my days at Hampshire when I was so kind of engrossed in my rehab um, and getting getting my, myself ready to play that I was forgetting about the fun things in life, the, the stuff that you do as a family, the, the stuff that you do with your mates. I was so focused and um, kind of... Yeah, just it wasn't there. I was vacant, um, and you know, talking to the fans, they'd ask me, "Are you fit?" Five quid for every time they asked me that, I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> and you, you, I felt as if I was putting on this face. I felt as if I was putting on a, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Little did they know underneath, I was, I was in turmoil. I was in agony most of the time, uh, and I, I kind of. Um, I feared going onto the field because I knew the amount of pain I was going to go through just to, to do it. It wasn't a fear of my knee breaking down. It was a fear of, right, this is going to hurt. And that was every single game. Regardless of the painkillers I took and, and, and whatnot, it was always going to be there. And you think about doing that every other day, it's, it's, it's hard, it's draining. Um, you wake up in the morning, checking my knee for swelling. If it is swollen, I have to call a physio. I have to go in and see him, see what's, you know, he has to assess it, decide whether I need to go and see a surgeon to get it drained. All that kind of stuff, just mounted up and mounted up and mounted up. So then when I did have that phone call, yeah, the, it's almost as if my, my body relaxed. It wasn't tense anymore. It wasn't thinking, it wasn't protecting itself all the time. It kind of just, honestly, just like a, it was, it was, it was a weird feeling. Do you get any pain in the knee now, or is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a race with my um, my oldest the other day over twenty yards, and uh, I couldn't move the next day. I was going down the stairs sideways. Um, the left knee is the one. The left knee. It's I've had a lot of operations on that. I had three microfractures, and um, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's not good. But do you know what? If it means me kicking a ball around with the lads for a day, uh, I'm feeling sore the next day. I'll I'll do that. I'll do that as often as I can. I saw you race with with your eldest on social media. How how long until he beats you? Oh, you, you haven't got long. <laughs> I'll give him six months. I'll give him six months. And the youngest will start beating me soon as well. Because <laughs> he's quick as well. He's quick. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're good lads. Are you a competitive dad? Would you would you let them win? Yeah. No. no. Never. My dad never let us win. And I, do you know what? I, I think some people may say, oh, competitive dad, this or that. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing because yeah. you're teaching them that nothing comes easy and they have to work at it if they want to kind of beat you. And do you know what? The day they do beat me, how good is that going to feel? I agree. I, I've never been one for, for letting mine win. I think, you know, and I, I've got two girls and we play sport and, on you know, you've got to play properly because I think, like you say, when when they do get to win, it'll, it's all that much, bit sweeter, isn't it? Oh, yeah, massively. Um, I mentioned your book a couple of times. Was that a good experience for you, writing that book? Quite a, quite a cathartic experience, actually. Uh, just venting, talking about stuff. 
I didn't really go after anyone because um, I didn't feel the need to. I haven't really had that many bad experiences. Um, no, there's a couple of people I, I'm a little bit, yeah, not really bothered, but I, I, th- I thought, well, why am I going to even mention them? I don't need to mention them. This book is about 2005 Ashes and moving on and, and parts of my career. Those people don't exist in my life anyway. They don't, they don't matter to me. They're not going to make a, an impact in my life anymore. Just leave them where they are. I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of knowing that they've got to me. And that's the way I looked at it. I think a lot of people in the past have maybe vented in their books and maybe regretted it later on. Because once it's out, it's there, isn't it? It's there for all to see. And relationships can be rebuilt. And that's the thing. So I thought, right, to speak honestly and openly about the experiences of 2005 and obviously some of the experiences you had. But I wasn't going in there to um, dish a dirt on anyone. I love one quote where it's, uh, you, you met Ricky Ponting and he said he you know he used to have nightmares about facing you. Do you wish you'd kind of heard that a little bit earlier in your career? Or was it nice to hear it? Was, look, I was out in Australia. I think it was the 2013 Ashes. And um, I was with a, a touring party. So I was their guide. Yeah. And um, I went to go and play in, a, in, a, in, a, in like an exhibition game in Perth. And to be fair, I rocked up thinking, ah, oh, they're not going to have many names there. Gilchrist was there, Pontin, uh, Andy Bickle. Um, they had a couple of the older generation. I can't remember who. Um, Hogg was there, I think he was. Um, Stu McGill. And we had, we had a good side, man. James, James Taylor was there. Obviously, Frank Smokey was there as well, Adam Holyoke. And we were just having a chat before the game, and him and Gilchrist came up to me and said, he said that. And he said they used to have meetings about me bowling reverse win. And obviously Fred as well. And I thought, wow. These legends of the game have actually sat in a room and tried to work out how they can deal with the reverse win. It blew my mind. Honestly, it blew my mind. I didn't think... Do you know when you go through a series, because you're playing against the likes of those lot, mm. you don't think to even think about it. You just think to go out there and play. And because they're so experienced, that's the one thing that did shock me that summer was the way that our reverse swing was so potent. Mm-hmm. These lads had played the game for so long. I thought they'd, you know, obviously they've seen it before. Maybe it was just the way me and Freddie bowled it. I'm not sure. Was the, the 2005 Ashes, is that your career highlight? <clears throat> to be honest, Hugh, that, that defines my career. Mm-hmm. No one talks about Simon Jones who played at Glamorgan or Worcester or Hampshire. Or even my early days in England, um, they talk about 2005, uh, and that's that. And I'm, look, I've been asked, would you have preferred to play 80 tests and, and not play in the old five Ashes? No, I do 18, 18 tests, played in the Ashes. I'm happy. Is there any particular moment in that series that sort of really stands out for you? The one that you know replays in the mind, or oh, Michael Clark wicket. Um, but you know what? I think it was at the Oval when um, Rudy Curtin and I think it was, was it Billy Bowden? Yeah. I think it was. Went out and he saw Rudy knock the bales off. That's when we knew we'd achieved our dream because we'd set out four years earlier to become the best in the world and we'd beaten everyone else and the Aussies were the only ones that were left. And to be fair, you look at that Aussie team from 1 to 11, unbelievable, unbelievable. And even the boys that were waiting to come in were unbelievable. Mm. 
Um, the strength and depth that side had. No wonder they dominated for, for like 10 years. Unbelievable. It's frightening the talent they had. And you think of the lads who haven't even played for Australia who were unbelievable as well because they weren't good enough to get in that side. Um, so the realisation then hit us that we'd actually achieved it. And like that feeling I had on the phone when I got told I wasn't on a contract, that just, that just release, you just felt relaxed. That was there. And um, we just sat down. We, we, we were stunned for a bit. We didn't know what to do. Mm. And then all of a sudden, it re- realizations hit, and we all just started cheering and jumping up and down, had a couple of beers, and then we went in and sat with the Aussies. Uh, and that was lovely. You know, we all taking our shirts off, getting them signed. Got four or five shirts signed by everyone. The, the 22 players, which was nice. Um, and we just had a, a, a good swig up until about 11 or 12, and then we went back to the hotel. A couple of us went out, and then obviously had that bus tour the next day. Um, I mean, again, you mentioned your book, how sort of like after having then 18 months later the 5 0 whitewash over there, do you think that the, the celebrations and the, the bus tour or whatever, do you think that maybe played a part in the come down afterwards and the the kind of we've reached the pinnacle and then there was the that fall? I think the biggest thing happened was injuries. Mm. Um, Strilo was struggling with his hip, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, my uncle, I, I wasn't able to tour. Um, so I think the, the balance of the side had gone slightly. I think Saj Mahmood came in, didn't he? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Saj got bowler. Um, but the, just the... Yeah, the balance of that bowling attack had gone one. Um, I don't think the, the celebrations or anything like that were an issue. Um, I just think injury started to hit us, and um, it was it, yeah, it was it, it was a tough one because do you know when you're watching at home, it's horrible because um, you just want to be there. I was rehabbing my ankle; I had an operation in Bristol, and it, it was it was horrible to watch. And but you got you got to give some kind of credit to the Aussies, man. They were hurting; they were hurting big time. And he thought, this isn't going to happen again. Warney, I don't know how many years he had left in him. Um, he was thinking, right, I'm not going out in a loss. They, 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 prop, you know, they probably had the, the bit between their teeth and they weren't going to lose that series no matter what. Do you have similar kind of highlights off the field in your career? Sort of, I don't know, if you do a good deal or when you were doing your coaching, if you, you had a really good session with a youngster and... Does that give you the same kind of buzz or is it incomparable? Uh, I wouldn't say it's comparable, but yeah, you, you still get a buzz from it. Um, the work is going, going well. Um, I used to love coaching. I used to just love seeing a, a boy or a girl, whoever I was coaching, or a young lad and a, a young lady kind of progressing. Because you can always remember what they were like when they started. And then you can see them in a month, maybe two months' time, seeing where they are. And it's a great feeling just to see them because the biggest thing for me is watching them enjoy the game, watching them be successful, taking wickets, scoring runs. And that's why they want to play the game. That's why they want to be on that field, is to be successful. Um, and, yeah, to see the joy in their faces. And, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great feeling. But, yeah, nothing compares to, to that win. Um, you mentioned those shirts you got signed. Do you have memorabilia from your house, from your playing days up around the house, or is it in a box in I've the got, garage? Or? It's, it's in the garage at the moment. I'm going to start putting them up. Um, 
it's, do you know what? I'll, I'll keep those. But any kit I've got from the clubs I played at, like Glamorgan, Worcester, Hampshire, I don't think I've got anything left. Mm. I, I just, I'm not kind of sentimental like that. Um, the serious stuff, like the, the real serious stuff, I mean, you know, like that win and um, my, my cap and, and all that, I've got that safe. Um, but any of the other kit that you get given, because you get given so much of it each year, I've, I don't wear it, just to be honest. It might be at my mum or dad's. I, I might have lost it when I, I've moved houses. Um, but it's just one of those things. It's not on eBay, I can tell you. I always... Uh, <laughs> I always, wouldn't get much for it anyway. <laughs> I always have a look before I interview anyone to see if, it, you know, if there's anything out there that people are trying to sell. And, and yeah. Uh, I had a look when before I came on to talk to you today, and the, there's no Simon Jones shirts or anything on eBay, so it's it's not found its way into that. That's the that's the only thing I'm ever wary of, right? Is when you sign uh, sign fan stuff. Mm. I always ask them who's it to. Yeah, because if you just sign your best wishes, you don't know what they're going to do with it. And look, I, I can understand if they want to do it and make quick back, but um, for me, if you sign something, it, it should always be to someone or. You know, it's yeah. part of the, the whole experience, isn't it? Because I remember asking, I, I went to cricket grounds with my dad when I was a kid and I'd ask him for an autograph and he'd always put two Simon, blah, blah, blah. And I, that, that made more to me, the fact that they were writing my name. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm an unashamed cricket geek and, and collect autographs mm-hmm. and sign books and things like that. And for me, it always means a lot more if it says to Hugh, you know, yeah. thank you for support something like that. Because it means... It's, it for me then it's not something that I could have just bought off eBay that I'd never do that anyway. But oh, and I've never I never sell any of any of the stuff I've got again. Much to my, my wife's dismay when she says she'll flick through eBay and go, someone's just sold a shirt by so and so signed for three hundred quid. Why don't you do that? Like, well, no, because that's not it's not why I have yeah. the stuff that I have. But it's that personal touch, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned your dad there. I mean, he he played and played for England. Did he give you advice? sort of through your career and at the end of your career about how to handle it and what to do? The, the best thing about my, my, my dad was he never put any pressure on me. Mm. And um, he's generally very laid back anyway. He's a bit like me. But he's, he, he um, I love football. That's all I wanted to do. And then I got to a certain age where I thought, right, I'm better at cricket, so I'll, I'll follow that. Um, but... I played cricket anyway because when you when we, we were growing up, you had the football season and then the cricket season. Now they overlap, don't they? Yeah. It's a nightmare. It, it does my head in. Um, so you're getting kids who can't do both sports. Because mm-hmm. um, I think it just... I always try and tell children, play as many sports as you can. It makes you an all-around sports mm-hmm. person. And I think that's why you find a lot of cricketers, they can do any sport. Because you've got that coordination. Um, so, yeah... Then I got my first professional contract. I remember Matty Maynard came to see me in Millfield. Yep. Um, would that have been 1996, something like that? Yeah, 1996. So then we got chatting. He, re- he really liked what I was doing. And then he came to the house and I signed my contract. And I went into the office to obviously sign the real contract with Mike Fackin. And I, I always remember, right? I was, what was I, 16 then? 15, 16. And my first contract was worth six grand. And I thought it was the wealthiest bloke in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a summer contract. So I'd be in school and then the second half of the summer I'd play in the, in the holidays. 
And then once I finished school, then I went full-time pro. Um, but yeah, to, to sign that, that contract and follow in my dad's footsteps, um, it, was, it, was a, it was a wonderful feeling. And I could see that my dad was obviously immensely proud as well. But the best, thing I, the, the best experience I ever had with my dad was on my debut in 2002. And NASA called me on to bowl. And I was bowling from the nursery end. And I looked up. And all the family and friends were just to the, what would be, would be my right of the media centre. Yeah. And I could see the old man. And he just gave me the thumbs up. And that was the best feeling, just to see him there, you know. Yeah, that, you can't buy that feeling, can you? No, no. Um, I, I have a, a, a cricketing intrigue around squad numbers. And yeah. you changed yours quite, you changed from 10 at Hampshire to to 50 at Glamorgan and you wore 25 for England. Was there ever any significance to those numbers to you or were they just given to you? Or um, To be fair, I remember my first ever squad number at Glamorgan was 19. Didn't like it. Um, but I wasn't senior enough to change it. Um, Hampshire, 10. Not sure why that was. I just liked it. Um, Glamorgan was 50. Brutally honest, I can't remember the reasons why. Um, England number was just given, I think 25 is my birthday. Right. Um, 25th. But I think that was given to me anyway, so that was quite lucky. Um, if I wanted any number, I'd probably go 23. Like Shane Morn or Michael Jordan or... Because Dean Cosker had that at Glamorgan. Um, nice number, that. Um, but yeah, look, numbers for me, they're just on your back and they don't really mean that much. Um, it's just one of those things that I remember um, Graham Heck used to have number one. I like that because yeah. he was obviously the the best batsman Musters ever had. Um, and I think he used to have number one. He might correct me on that, but I'm sure it was number one. What about the, the 610, which was your, your England test number? Is that Does that hold significance to you now? Massive. Yeah, massive. I, um, I use that in my email, as you've seen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm very proud of it. Um, I haven't got any tattoos. If I was going to get a tattoo, I'd, I'd have something like that in there. Um, you know, that's that's my identity with England. That that'll go down in in history. Like my dad was number four twenty. Um, so no, those numbers are with you for forever. You know, they'll, they'll always be in the history books, and that, and that's huge for me. Uh, I think one eight six was my one day number. Um, you know, that's not as significant for me because I enjoyed playing the game, but for me, test cricket is, is the the test, as you call it. That's where you find out how good you are. That's where you find out. For me, I think in the one-day formats, the best team doesn't always win. Mm. Can take, you know, it can take one spell or one guy being a bit lucky with a bat and the game can go away from you, especially in T20. With test cricket, over so five days, there's no hiding place. We're going to find out how good you are, uh, and let's go. And um, what advice would you give to a young player starting out now? Someone who's just, like you say, just signed the first contract. What would you say to them about the game and going forward? I think one of the biggest things is to try and relax and enjoy it. Because, um, you know... <laughs> They can feel the pressure. They, they're young. They, they haven't been in a, in a man's environment, really. 
And I always remember going it first time into the changing rooms. And you've seen the lads you've seen on TV. And that's intimidating. Do you know what I mean? You're actually on a par because you're in that dressing room with them. You haven't achieved what they have in the game. You can't say that's on a par. But I mean, you're worthy of your place in that dressing room. Uh, and that is quite daunting. But I think just work hard. And I think the biggest thing now, you have to be a three-dimensional cricketer. You have to, no, if you're a bowler, then you have to be able to obviously be a, generally bowlers are good fielders anyway. Um, apart from the odd few, <laughs> <laughs> we can name them, couldn't we? Yeah. Um, but um, in terms of your batting, just work as hard as you can at it if you're a bowler. Um, and if you're a, like, I remember speaking to Liam Dawson down in, in Hampshire, I saw what a talent he is. Mm. And I just said, mate, just keep working and working and working on, on both aspects of your game. I said, you're a brilliant fielder anyway, that'll just come naturally. So keep working on your bat and keep working on your bowling. And, you know, he, he's, he's been in, in, in around the England squad and he's played for England. So, look, he, he is, he's a fantastic prospect, that kid. I, I love working with him, so respectful. Um, and I think, you know, giving him, giving him time, he, hopefully he'll get back into that squad. Were you at Hampshire when Michael Bates was there keeping, or did you miss? Yeah. yeah. How was he as a Batesy. kid? Bates, he was outstanding. Outstanding. Uh... Great club man, athlete. Um, I think the only thing that maybe they looked at, which they felt he needed to work on, was his batting. Don't get me wrong, he was a good batsman. Um, could hold his own. But, but could he play those innings where he comes in at seven in a T20 and, and, and takes the game away from the opposition? I'm not sure. And I think that's... You know, given the chance, I reckon he, he might have been able to. But as a keeper, yeah. One of, the, one of the better ones I've seen. What, uh, what advice for someone coming to the end of their career? Someone who's just, you know, hit 35 and, and like you, wondering whether a, a contract's coming their way, what would you say to them? Just start planning three... Well, look, you know, you know the end is coming when you, when you hit 30, 31. Just start planning then, I would. Um, I, I wouldn't do what I did and wait till the end. Because then it is a bit of a stressful situation. You're worrying about when, when the next paycheck's coming in. You're worrying about what you're going to do. Um, and then you make rash decisions. You don't make the right decisions. I'd say start planning when you're 30, 31. Um, and then you've got three or four years to plan. And then I reckon you'll be in a place where you're quite happy to leave the game. And you're quite happy to leave the game on your terms. Rather than try and hang on for that next contract. Just to give you another year to plan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think the best thing is that they start planning early. And last question from me: What would you say was the secret to a happy retirement from playing cricket? Um, I think the the big thing for me is whilst you're playing, get everything out, do everything you possibly can to stay on our field, do everything you possibly can to achieve what you want to achieve. So then, when you finish, there's no regrets. That was a real pleasure to talk to someone who was so heavily involved in that series that engaged so many people back into cricket in this country was just wonderful and to hear him talk about cricket and his life after cricket so positively was really a fantastic experience for me. If you are looking for a bit more reading matter for this period of as we come out of lockdown then Simon's book is an excellent read it covers everything within that series and there's some great stories about it and his career in general plus his life after cricket it's called The Test and is still available from all good bookshops 
Next time on the Back to the Pavilion podcast, we make the short journey from Cardiff to Bristol to talk to a player who became a cult hero in our household. We're never really sure why, but he was. In fact, my wife even bought me one of his shirts off eBay for our cotton wedding anniversary. He played 77 times for Gloucestershire, taking over 150 wickets in the process, before injury cruelly forced him to retire at age just 25. Since then, he's forged a successful career away from the pitch. So join me next time as we welcome Ian Saxelby back to the pavilion. That's all from me today, so bye-bye for now. Take care of yourselves and others. See you soon.